0: I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at consminds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 97, we read Whatever Happened to Tradition by Tim Stanley, published in 2021.
1: Tim Stanley was born in 1982 in England. He graduated from the University of Cambridge with a Bachelor of Arts, a Master of Philosophy, and a Doctor of Philosophy degrees. His doctoral thesis was on Ted Kennedy's role in the U.S. Democratic Party in the 1980s. He taught at the University of Sussex and Royal Holloway University of London, later becoming a columnist and lead writer for the Daily Telegraph, also a regular contributor to CNN.
0: All right, so this book, Whatever Happened to Tradition, is about tradition, as we would guess. He says, today we are nervous about nostalgia. Our culture associates it with prejudice and right-wing fantasy, but it nourishes our very human need for roots and belonging, and it provides respite from modernity's propensity for change and aggressive individualism. Your life will be shaped by traditions, whether you're aware of it or not, from the laws that govern your country to that ominous doorbell on Halloween. But the primary villain, he says, in this story is liberalism, and by that he means classical liberalism, the political inheritance of the Enlightenment, which has created a state of permanent rebellion against the past. Liberated from the prison of the past went the theory the children of tomorrow would be free to define themselves as they wish and to pursue happiness on their own terms. What we inherited was a consensus of economic and social liberalism that translated into soulless consumerism. And while some flourished, many felt alienated and unfulfilled. So a little bit of this, this in some ways this book is kind of an amalgamation. It definitely has a number of themes that we read in uh, Patrick Deneen in mm-hmm. see, in. I don't know episode fifty something probably, and uh, mixed with with his call for a return to tradition, and more than anything, just I feel like this is his argument for why tradition is still relevant. And uh, even though I totally agree with him, we're gonna get into some of these details. I feel like it's a little half-hearted, but uh, but he is he is making that overarching. Argument that tradition is still meaningful and helpful and should be in our in our lives. Yeah, he gets at, at some of these uh, cleavages
1: in the old fusion that we have talked about a bunch of times about how you know your libertarian capitalist types were joined together with traditional conservatives to make up the twentieth century conservative movement, and now uh, they're sort of diverging. And he's really focusing on a lot of what made that divergence basically that. Capitalism, liberalism in the, in the classical sense is all about innovation, new selling, buying products, different things from all over the world, things from wherever. And it, you know, if, if tradition sells, they'd sell it, you know, and you, you see some of that, you know, if, if you go to tourist sites, they sell traditional things, but then if, but the rest of the country, they're not selling traditional things because we already have traditional things. They're selling whatever's new and they're creating appetites for making new and it's it's that sort of um, strain of, it you know it sounds a lot like, and he, he addresses this later in the book, but it sounds a lot like what even people like Marx said about the industrial revolution and the the bourgeoisie. And he has different answers than Marx, as as you might expect for what to do about that. But it's it's a, it's a a theme that I think left and right have both hit at, at various times and places about what's the problem with life since the Industrial Revolution, how disruptive it was, how much it flattens everything and then and bulldozes everything and, and replaces it with something new, but something also that kind of feeds on itself, and that's classical liberalism.
0: Right. The whole theory, this uh, Enlightenment view of the world is to chop at the roots of any and all assumptions to understand the root causes of things and in, in the scientific realm, it's been incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. But obviously, when it comes to tradition, it, it has a tendency to uh, tear down. And, and the left has taken it and run with it, which I think we'll get into a little bit. But to start it off, he gives us a sense for, for tradition. He says, almost all traditions evolve and can wind up looking quite different from how they began. So for him, he he, he draws a real distinction between uh, what he calls fundamentalism versus tradition tradition. And fundamentalism for him is defined, he says, by purity and cannot engage with outsiders for fear of compromise. By contrast, authentic tradition enjoys the self-confidence that comes from old age, and most of the major religions are happy to chat. So he's not very dogmatic when it comes to the, the doctrine, let's say. And regardless of what the tradition is, whether it's religious tradition or or holiday traditions, he doesn't seem particularly concerned with the content of, of what it is. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the left hates the most about tradition mm-hmm. is the content and being trapped by something that's old and, and uh, you know, as wrapped up in white supremacy or whatever else. And he doesn't seem too concerned about that. He's, he says uh, there are tra- uh, traditions of oppression, but also traditions of liberation and contrasts are frequently found within the same tradition. I'm not arguing here that all traditions are equal in moral worth. When considering tradition, we have to be incredibly careful to sort historical fact from fiction, to understand the past as it really was, and not rewrite it to suit our prejudices or needs. We must exercise discernment or conscience. I think what he's really getting at is saying, like, it's not the content of the tradition, it's the tradition itself it's having something that, that we turn to and rely on and, and something that we can count on. And every year we do this thing. And I see this mm-hmm. with uh, with my own kids. My wife is very much uh, tr- traditional as far as she, she likes to create tradition, family traditions, you know, our own micro family traditions and do the same thing every year. I mean, it doesn't have to be something big. It just has to be something that's unique and, and special for that time. You know, every, every uh, Valentine's Day she writes them, two weeks worth of, uh, of Valentine's giving him a special note for each person and, you know, stuff like that. And I think that's what he's, what he's really getting at is, um, trying to turn us away from being focused on what's the doctrine. And that's what we need to stick to. Like the Bible says X instead, he's just more like, it's what humans need is something that is uh, predictable and comes around, you know, and is part of who we are. And it helps us to identify us as a, as a, as a people and kind of as a a, a community and that sort of thing.
1: I, I think that's right. I was, I was even looking at the same passage you just read about the difference between historical fact and fiction. And I, I was going to quote that one myself because I think this, this distinction between fundamentalism and traditional, life is extremely useful because you get that a lot when you talk about something being a tradition you say oh well do you want to live like it's the ninth century and most people even traditional people would say no that that would be crazy that's what uh isis does they they're the real fundamentalist you know you know they 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 really do say you know anything since then mm mm can't have it it's got to be exactly like it was in the days of the the prophet muhammad that's that Mm -hmm. and that's i mean even fairly traditional muslims in the areas they conquered didn't care for that so i think that's an important distinction of the the closed-minded fundamentalism where you just you pick a spot and often it's a sort of an imaginary spot you know in the same way like the the nazis had this mythologized german pagan past that they were drawing on and and mostly making up as sort of like this before the roman empire this was what our people was were like and we you know we have to get to these ideals again and it was all mm-hmm. nonsense you know it was all made up <laughs> but they use it for their own ends and they were fundamentalist about it um that's why i he tradition and he talks about um burke a lot and this was i mean we read burke and live early in the first season and he, you know he comes up constantly and part of the reason is he, re- he was the first to really describe what this means, but, all, but Burke's definition of, of tradition included change and included progress. Just not a, a fetish for novelty, not a, not a anything goes, but certainly a willingness to learn, to try things, to see what works, to see, you know, just like, like families create new traditions and. Maybe if it went really badly one year, you might say, well, let's try something different. You know, let's let's go to a different place for vacation. Let's, you know, maybe maybe do something a little different on Christmas because this doesn't feel right. And I think it's the same way a people can do. And, you know, no nation or or people is ever static. Even we look back at the medieval times and say this is how feudalism was. But feudalism was changing that whole time, too. And there there were differences. And, you know, then. New continents got discovered and different things happened. New products came to markets. It, there was change. And mm-hmm. that's still a traditional society though. And I, I that distinction here he makes early in the book, I think is very important in deciding what it is to be a traditionalist.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and yesterday was the Super Bowl. And it's even something as simple as that has become an American tradition, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, a football game. My mom doesn't know the first thing about football doesn't care but she'll always be there for the super bowl party right and everybody's there for the halftime show Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether you care about football or not you want to see the halftime show and and it's a tradition it's just something that we do and everybody just assumes okay and we have traditional food for it right which is nachos it's uh it's it's uh buffalo wings it's uh you know hot Cheetos or whatever, whatever your family tradition is, you know, uh, uh, chips and salsa, all that kind of thing. And, and it's fun and it's something that we do every year and it's, it's uh, something to look forward to. And I think, I think traditions can be as simple as that. And, you know, everyone in America kind of has that connection to football for that reason. And, and, and Thanksgiving too, you know, and it's, and it's, it's kind of fun and it's kind of cool whether you like the sport or not. Yeah, and that that feeling of normalcy, I think, is what
1: tradition gives us. I mean, that we, yeah. we've we talked on previous episodes about you know, fitting into an order, the sort of pre-industrial world that, you know, you knew your place and that its upsides and its downsides. You know, I mean, you felt comfortable where you were. You were also stuck there. You know, that was the, the good and the bad of pre-industrial life. But even after industrialization and after people get more freedom to choose their own work and to move to different towns and things, living in a society that keeps these traditions alive still makes it you feel less alienated because you know Mm -hmm. what you know what's going to happen next you know what the rhythm of the year looks like to you i think that's part of what and it it's it's kind of hard to express but i think that's part of what set people on edge in the past couple years because of so many traditions being canceled or drastically changed because of covid and and all the the pandemic things you know this super bowl was actually you know, outside, unmasked, people yeah. were doing normal things, right. you know, it was like, it felt a lot more normal, people were having Super Bowl parties, you know, and, and it was a little bit closer to the end of all the craziness, and I, I but missing that for the past couple of years, and missing all the other things, not being able to get together for Thanksgiving, or Christmas, or whatever other holidays you have, it, it's, it's stressful, even if, Christmas itself can be stressful when you do it, you know, because you got to get the presents ready for the kids and all these things and travel maybe, but then not doing it is a different kind of stress. It's like a yeah. void It's yeah. I think people have been sitting there. I don't think that's the only reason everyone's gone crazy the past couple of years, but it, I think it feeds into it. Cause there's that low level of like disorientation. People are, are feeling every tradition has been a little bit messed with. Like it must've been, it's like a, less violent version of the French revolution where they're just tearing <laughs> everything down, you know? And then you say, even if you didn't like that thing, at least you knew it was there every year. Now, who knows, you know, who knows what's coming next. So yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we're feel, we feel tradition in our lives, even when it's faded and even when it's not as, as obvious and in your face.
0: Yeah, totally. That's, that's well said. So what does he, what else does he think that we're missing when, uh, when, when tradition starts to wane? He says across the West, there's a dearth of purpose and spirit. We can't agree on who we are or what we're about, or even if these big existential questions matter. Many of us are happy to find definition in our job, our family, our hobbies. There's also a lot of anger out there, paranoia, depression, and decay. It does not feel as if we are in control of our destiny. Things just happen to us, the same things over and over again. Nothing seems to be learned. Now, this part, I mean, really echoes what you were just saying it does not feel as if we were in control of our destiny. Things just happen to us. And I I love the Mm -hmm. point that you made about Christmas in itself is very stressful and uh, holidays can be stressful and, and you have maybe you have family coming over and that's stressful and everything, but, but it's the type of stress that we rely on and depend on. And, you know, you you have a sense of control over that and, Mm -hmm. and rather than just things just happening to you and you don't know what's going to come next and that kind of thing. And, so, I mean, obviously, religion plays a huge part in this as far as purpose and spirit. You know, there was a, an expectation that, at least uh, in, for, for much of American history, there was an expectation of what the common purpose was. And and you, you had a sense for uh, how people viewed the world and afterlife and all that sort of thing. And now, obviously, none of that is agreed upon whatsoever. And so f- people have to find... Meaning and and purpose in other things, something we've talked about on on multiple episodes. But uh, you know, I think this happens on uh, on the right as much, maybe not quite as much as the left, but uh, but it also happens on the right as far as folks moving away from religion and moving on to other things. And and in the left, they certainly have their new religions. And I think this is because it's, it's human nature. It's uh, we, you know, they they want to say that they that tradition is uh, is shackles and chains. Um, but in fact, what they really want to do is just kind of change the traditions <laughs> from, uh, from religious traditions to uh, environmentalism or, or, or you know social justice which is which is the new religion of the left or whatever and where you have your own liturgies and your own your own beliefs and, and your own original sin and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, people are, people
1: are determined to <clears throat> recreate it on new terms because I, th- I guess we just feel a need for that and he he calls he says liberalism is a tradition itself which is interesting he says it's a tradition that is anti-tradition so it undermines itself tears up everybody's roots including its own and that that that's um a lot what Deneen talked about mm-hmm. too and i don't know i mean i think i think we discuss a lot of the problems of liberalism but i think we ought to be careful also to to realize it's still still probably the best basis for a society we should just keep our eyes open to its flaws and do what we can to fix them you know and i, I think and i don't think uh i don't think he goes i don't think stanley goes too far and you know wanting to overthrow the liberal order and have uh you know some sort of caesaro Popism. you know like uh some other more extreme thinkers on the new right but but he, he definitely he questions liberalism pretty hard and I, but i i think for it's from a place of knowing that it's it he, he's not a he's not a medievalist who wants to return to feudalism but he too often when we when we question it people think that's what you're saying you know when you when you say hey you know this is kind of undermining a lot of good stuff in addition to all the good stuff that it brings like you mentioned about how science in the enlightenment tradition just took off and gave us so many life-saving treatments and and life-enhancing technologies that we would not have discovered in a in a feudal backward society where everybody knew his place and it wasn't scientist it was you know uh dirt farmer you know uh, but I, I just i think it's important to not go too far off the deep end when we i mean well i think what he's saying is liberty is still a good cause like he says here Human beings can only exercise liberty if they're disciplined and self-giving. Liberalism encourages us to put our own appetites first. And then somewhere in here is that John Adams quote about our society being made only for uh, virtuous people. That, that shows up in every book anymore. It's true, though. And you know, um, Like the Chesterton line about getting rid of God doesn't get rid of religion. It just makes a new religion. Yeah. I, I forget the exact words, but that's in here, too. These things show up in every book because they're true, and I think uh, tradition and liberalism have to go hand in hand to get the the true freedom that we've been trying to establish in this country for a long time and mostly have, but it's a a delicate balance because liberalism does undermine itself in that way and then kind of eats its seed corn, where I think we're getting to that point where there is little left to build on.
0: Yeah. So to that point, he says tradition is defined by three qualities it connects the individual to their society, it passes on social knowledge, and transcends time and place. Now, that's very Burkean. He says liberalism often does the complete opposite it prioritizes the individual. Institutions that place restrictions on individual liberty, such as church or marriage, have been cut down to size, and our sense of belonging has been weakened, leading to atomization. So I think folks on the left, especially today, will blame a lot of those ills on capitalism. And so I do think it's important that what he's saying here is uh, blaming it on cl- capitalism is, is a pretty shallow way of thinking about it because it really is just overall classical liberalism is the, is the problem because even though it's, it created so much good, it also does undermine some of these other things, the institutions. It, uh, and ultimately, it's undermined church and marriage, which folks on the left would say is a good thing, but without realizing, like, well, actually, that just undermines all of the and, and creates many of the inequities that we find in society, right? Um, especially especially the uh, destruction of marriage. So being cut down to size, people don't feel like they belong, uh, leading to atomization, we've read this in so many books by now. <laughs> it's the point, I feel mm-hmm. like the point has been made. And for for all those who've who've followed us on this journey, you're probably like, yeah, I've heard this one already. We we got it. Um, and it's it's still what I think we we keep coming back to these conclusions over and over again because it's just so very difficult to come up with some answers. Now, later on, I, he, he has, he has his own thoughts about what the answers should be and we'll cover those. But, um, I think that's why it's important to identify, but we just keep re-identifying these things. I think mostly because <laughs> it's difficult to figure out like what to do next. Yeah. That's always the, the million dollar question,
1: but he, 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 he does. I, I think the point needs reinforcing because I mean, for one thing, most people aren't reading a hundred books. They might just pick up this one. And you know that the idea of just liberalism liberates us, and that that is what it's for, and that's what it actually does. But that's not liberation. It can't be a goal, right? Not by itself. That's that's meaningless. Liberation to do what is the question? Liberation to, I don't know, just live a licentious life, pleasure seeking, epicurean, mm. or maybe liberated to build the best society you know how to build best family you know how to build and to worship as you please to to li- to, to seek virtue as you can and that's you know it's not liberation from the self as you know it's not liberation to, to make up a new identity it's liberation to to live your true identity at, you know as a free person in a society you know with those reciprocal rights and duties that that bind us all together and that's the part that gets forgotten. It's, it's, it's the hard part. It's, you know, it's the, it's like the, the second half of Keynesianism that always gets forgotten. You know, everyone wants to spend money when times are bad deficit spend, because we need to prime the pump. Then when times are good, the other half is you're supposed to raise taxes and pay it back. Right. No, we just don't do that though. It's hard. Right. We'll just keep priming the pump. <laughs> yeah. Pump needs priming, you know, but that's the same thing with liberalism. It's supposed to liberate, it's supposed to tear down the, the bad institutions, but it's not supposed to tear down all the institutions because there's nothing to replace it with. It doesn't bring anything to the table. It, it is, uh, you know, it's the, it's the torch that can, that can burn down a rotten structure, but it doesn't, it's not the hammer and, 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 nails to rebuild it you know it doesn't it doesn't create so much as it just leaves space for us to create and what we do with that is it's hard to learn to do the right thing when everything around you has been destroyed
0: Mm -hmm. all right so he dives a little bit into uh, deconstruction he says for most of us respect of country is presumed just as we instinctively cherish our parents, our home, and our memories because they are ours, without them we'd be nothing. I mean, to me, this is just basic humanness. <laughs> but I found over the years uh, that uh, not everybody feels this way, um, for sure. And uh, to me, it's a uh, it's an abnormality. But apparently, um, it's shared by a lot of folks who uh, who don't automatically instinctively cherish, you know, their sort of own memories and home, you know, sort of thing. But uh, yet he says, yet there is a ter- determination in the 21st century West to deconstruct history, even to discredit it with the implication that anyone who clings to it, link- clings on to it is at best stupid or at worst, literally Hitler. <laughs> um, venerable institutions will have willingly slandered their own history. This is the academy today stripped out their principles and alienated their core supporters. The effort generally led by men and women who joined said institution with the perverse intention of changing it beyond recognition. I think this is most of our nonprofits. I think this is all of academia. I think this is all of the the foundations and uh, all the larger sort of endowments that are, that were passed on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, many years ago. This is where we are, is to just tear down. He says, history has become a game of seeking new perspectives and marginalized voices, interrogating our problematic narratives, which are invariably uh, contested. Obviously, we covered this um, in our episode about uh, with um, Lindsay and... Um, Pluck Rose. Pluck Rose, yes, thank you. Uh, so go, go listen to that. But He says, you'd imagine that in the contest to win taxpayer money universities would focus on the things that interest the taxpayer (laughs) or that historical studies would at least have something nice to say about the society that bankrolls it. Instead, the history business has become in many quarters not only divorced from its consumers, but critical of much of what they hold dear or regard as being beyond politics. I think honestly, when it comes to, to uh, social science in the universities today, it's just an absolute wasteland of, of just like far left, completely radical uh progressivism and uh it's just it's so detached from from reality it's crazy and and i, I, I th- this has struck me universities would focus on the things that interest the taxpayer i mean there are a lot of things that interest the taxpayers you know what the interests them right now how about inflation yeah but we're not talking about inflation we're talking about these uh these trumped up just completely bogus ideas about voting rights that are just mm-hmm. completely delusional and pulled out of out of the ether Uh, and it's just nonsense, but, um, that's, that's been the focus. You know, what else has been the focus is these multi-trillion dollar bills to, uh, re reorder, uh, society. And that's not what people want. That's not what they're interested in. What they want you to do. If you work at a university, what they want you to do is study. Like, how can we, (laughs) how can we improve the inflationary situation? You know, they don't, they don't want you um, spending our taxpayer money trying to figure out why, uh, you know, they should have self-loathing because they're white, for example.
1: Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the the people who are doing that are doing so because they, they really do equate fundamentalism with traditionalism. And I think to them, the only way they can avoid being, the, you know, the complete reactionary fundamentalist is to tear down these rotten structures. But it's, as Stanley explained, it's a misunderstanding of what tradition is. And, he, you know, he talks about, he talks about Victorian England, how they sort of, rediscovered some traditions that had kind of fallen away like like gothic architecture or things like that you know and people say that's you know it's fake tradition you're just you know it's a recent innovation you know you're not we haven't been living this way the whole time and it's and this answer is kind of uh so what you know people (laughs) people like it it's it it reminds us who we are and where we came from and it it's not hurting anybody you know um People want to go to church in a Gothic cathedral and not a big square cube. That's, that's okay. It's good. It makes it feel right to them. And he says, he says, you know, each, each contributor built on previous achievements, discovering problems, solving them through the steady expansion of the common syntax to belong to a tradition is also to make that tradition. That's a, it, it's an ongoing creative process. It, and that's, it's just not, it's not fast. It, it takes time to really incorporate things make sure they make sure they work like you talked about the amish in here if you know they're not actually stuck in the 1600s like you you might think they've added things since then but they just wait a long time before they do and make sure it's not going to disrupt everything else they have going on now i'm not ready to go amish i, I like doing this podcast among other things and that doesn't really work for them mm-hmm. but I see where they're coming from. Um, and I mean, maybe we don't have to be quite as extreme as, as those folks, but the idea of just not adopting every new thing and, you know, that Silicon Valley idea of move fast, break stuff, you know, it, that, that wild innovation, it's like, well, let's just try it. See what happens. But when you're so big and, and when things can move so quickly as they do today and catch on in, in every country and, and, and every social class and, and all around the world, you know, maybe, th- maybe think about it, you know, before you just dive right in. And that's that's antithetical to liberalism, capitalism, whatever you want to call it. But it doing it slowly, it doesn't foreclose everything. It doesn't mean it means we can have a, a place in between, tear it all down and change not one thing. You know, in between, we're changing slowly. We're learning, we're adapting, but we're doing it in a way that that isn't making every person feel the tremendous anxiety for all the displacement in the society making people like in the uh Goodhart book road to somewhere he talked about people not recognizing their own country and people on the left that take that extremely racially like oh you mean they look different that's not what it means it means the whole thing feels different it's not about what the person looks like and actually he makes he makes a great point in here talking about um one reporter went to London and he said, uh, you know, it was so much Muslim immigration, nobody looks you in the eye anymore. And uh, Stanley's like, that's actually great assimilation because Englishmen, <laughs> Englishmen famously do not look you in the eye and, you know, keep to themselves on the street. So it's not about that, but it is about other, just the way we live, wherever you're from, the way we live in this place changes so much. And that it's it's truly alienating. And that's that's something that, a tr- more traditional society doesn't have a problem with.
0: Yeah. And and I think he he kind of explains, you know, sort of the folks on the left and friends that I have will say um you know, it's just it's it's so naive to be looking to these uh the founders or whoever else because they had xyz flaws and they were just as terrible and and uh, he he, he kind of talks a little bit about this says people are not naive about the past they know full well that their ancestors basically were human the key point he says is that the nostalgic past the past scrubbed into an ideal is a yardstick by which to judge the present you know um i remember when i i took this uh course early in college and learning about uh martin luther king which at the time you know i only knew the basics about him and so anyway learning more was uh, in the civil rights movement was very interesting. And, and, uh, obviously, uh, Martin Luther King had his, his own personal failings and, uh, you know, rather than me share them, anyone can look them up themselves, but he had his own personal failings. And I remember, um, reading this, uh, this one author who said like, um, yeah, he did, but you know, why are you trying to destroy our heroes? And, Mm -hmm. and I, I really took that as like, yeah, you know, I mean, all of these guys have have flaws, and some of them are very serious flaws, and so do I. And I assume everyone else does at the other end of, you know, listening to our voices today. And that's okay. And he, again, he goes back to it's not so much the content, because the content itself can change and can evolve. And it's sort of like, yeah, that was bad, so let's just let's tweak it and let's do something quite a little bit different. But his major point is. We need, we need the past. We need people that we look up to. We need sort of these scrubbed ideals that we can look back and say, "Yeah, let's do it like they did." You know, we like our ancestors and have some pride in it and have uh, have some, uh, someone that we look to, like my my great grandfather. He did X, Y, and Z, and he actually did you know A, B, and C as well. But we're not going to talk about that. We're <laughs> going to talk about the good things that he did and these and and <laughs> these yeah. uh, these qualities that we've picked out that he had that we like and that should be, that we want to emulate or, you know, whatever, uh, if it's a founder or if it's someone else who did something in history, I mean, it's not even so much the person, it's just the, the, the qualities is the characteristics. It's the values of sort of like this, we can do that and we, we want to be better and we want to try to do that and, and emulate those, those good characteristics sort of thing. And I, I, so I, I really liked that. I really liked how he pushed back and uh, cause I don't think, I, I honestly don't think Americans are naive about the past at all. Uh, and I mean, I, I definitely reject the notion that we didn't learn anything that was bad in history. I mean, I certainly yeah, I, I did. did, <laughs>
1: did mean, too. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know where that comes from.
0: I grew up knowing, knowing slavery was bad from the time I was in elementary school. That wasn't mm-hmm. news to me. Like, you know, just in the last five years when critical race theory has made it to the, the forefront, you know? Um, and, uh, I learned more details as I got older and certainly in college, I, I learned a lot more than I, when I was in second grade, as it should be, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's just, yeah, there's a time and, and place for, uh, for learning more details and that sort of thing. But, um, I don't really believe that people are are so naive and gullible that they, they really think that, um, you know, George Washington was absolutely perfect and, and the whole cherry tree, what do we call that? The par- whatever parable of the cherry tree was, um, mm. you know, an indication that he never told a lie in his entire life. And like, nah, we don't, we don't really believe that. But what we're saying is, you know, he was a pretty honest man. And you know, that's a value that we, a characteristics that we want our kids to have, you know, we want them to think about like, Hey, you should tell the truth, (laughs) that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And he gets at that in here. It's, you know, when we, when we celebrate a person, it's not, it's not an endorsement of everything in his life, but why are we celebrating him? Like, if you were only celebrating Washington and Jefferson because they owned slaves, that would be insane. Mm-hmm. But that's not why we have them on Mount Rushmore. We have them on, on there because they they did great things in the in the Revolutionary War and as president. And you know, I mean, Washington not only setting up the whole federal government, all the traditions that came after, and and but also leaving at the end, not becoming the dictator like so many revolutionary leaders did. That in itself is makes him worthy of having the statue in every town. And yeah, he's not perfect. Nobody is. I I, I think that's that same sort of it. It's it's a bad faith reading to to say that. Well, if you celebrate him, you must be celebrating the worst part of him. That's that's why you're doing it. And it's like no, mm-hmm. everybody knows this. You know, everybody knows when you talk about a man, you're talking about a flawed person. Though you know, like you said, we all have these flaws, some bigger than others. But I I think it was good he made that point as our. Getting to the end, I guess we should talk sort of about where where he wants to go with this. Mm-hmm. And um, Stanley just says a um, sort of a simpler explanation of the the divergence of the two factions of the right is he says while conservatives see their primary function as preserving traditional culture, big business does not. And I think that's something you hear more and more. He um, says capitalism has been shaped by the ideas. And aspirations of the enlightenment so it's another example of a tradition of the Rhodes tradition and i i don't think they're always in conflict but certainly the way corporations are set up it's for it's about it's it's not about a continuum of the living the dead and the yet to be born you know it's about next quarter's earnings are we going to make them are we going to beat estimates you know that's sort of we got to make money now so people don't sell the stock and And we all lose our jobs that's Mm -hmm. it's it's just short-sighted versus long-sighted and sometimes they can overlap i mean trade is is has been good and it and traditionally people have always traded you know this country was founded by people who came here mostly to trade you know they had other ideas too about religious liberty and whatnot but they came here to to make some money so it's not like that's not a part of where we are from and where we're going but taking the long view versus the short view is, is, a, is, a, is always going to be a conflict between these two sides.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's a proponent of uh, common good conservatism, something that's uh, been coined by kind of the Marco Rubio's and First Things crowd, the Patrick um uh, those folks. And he says uh, individual liberty is a facet of common good, but if it stands in the way of it, the common good comes first. Mm-hmm. So – he's what does he mean by that well for common good conservatism for him and i think for a lot of these folks but he says could we see conservative governments pushing welfare programs that promote the family or measures that correct the destabilizing aspects of capitalism could we finally get that romantic dream of socialism with medieval characteristics who knows (laughs) now um so I think this is why a few minutes ago I was saying we 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 restate the problem over and over again, but we have a hard time like figuring out what the answer is because, of course, as soon as he starts talking about his answers and this common good conservatism, I mean to me, it's it's it, I don't buy what he's selling. I guess I'll put it that way. I mean, uh, what we need is more a conservative version of welfare programs. You know, I, what we need is to um, become. Uh, correct the destabilizing aspects of capitalism, which means m- more interventions in the economy. And, you know, if I were king or someone I trusted like you, Kyle, to do that, well, maybe I could be for it, but that's not how our system works. We're, mm-hmm. we're in charge today and they're in charge tomorrow. And uh, every time we allow more power to be handed over to the bureaucrats or to the, the folks with the levers of power, uh, it just means it's going to come back to bite us tenfold. And that's what I worry about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's always that that problem. Um, I guess if, if your choice is between intervention and non-intervention and you think the non-intervention is better, well, that's what we should be doing. But sometimes sometimes no choice is also a choice. And that's, that's kind of how I think he's coming at it. Like, we're going to have a welfare system. There's, you know, there's not enough libertarians in this country to totally repeal the thing. So should it favor, should it encourage marriage or not? You know, should it encourage intact families or not? Should it encourage moving to work or staying dependent? That's a, that's a a harder choice where neither one is, is ideal. I think neither, in neither situation, but do I think it's the federal government's job to do these things? And yet Mm. it has become that since, since the sixties and earlier. He does, he does have some qualms, though. He says, one reason I'm nervous about the common good project is that I feel the tradition-minded should resist this, that we should be stubbornly defending spheres of life that are separate from the state and separate from politics, because sometimes I just want to listen to music, read a book, or eat a meal without having to think about the political ramifications. Mm-hmm. That one uh, I highlighted and underlined and all that, uh, <laughs> because it it, it is seemed that it, what, some people on our side want to sort of just do the inverse of the left and make everything culture war and make everything the problem with this the problem with that how does it relate to this and that and it's like some i think most people just want to watch a ball game you know they want to go to a movie without some heavy-handed message from one side or the other like not everything is politics i i think he's right about that and if if common good conservatism means just uh making the right the inverse of the left in in the way that it seeps into everything and undermines everything it's it's no good either it's mm-hmm. i mean it's it's not traditional and it's not enjoyable and it's not it's not the way most folks want to live i think one part of american conservatism that comes through again and again is the, the desire to be left alone
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that that endless culture war feels like it doesn't leave you alone
0: yeah i totally second that and then i would also add that it's it's hard for me to be skeptical of of government's ability to effectively use power, which we've discussed on so many episodes that the the government is just incredibly inefficient and essentially never accomplishes the goals it sets out to accomplish. But then to turn around and say, but if they were good motives, then we can do it. (laughs) No, no, I'm still just a skeptical. Even if the motives were great, even if the end game was great, uh, I'm still incredibly skeptical that we could achieve it, and that uh, that pulling this lever and twisting this dial uh, in our direction is actually going to achieve the goals. I just I don't I don't really have faith that that's the case.
1: And that's my final thought. I think that's a good I think
0: that's a good it's
1: about a good place to end it. I, I mean I think I'll, I'll echo most of that, and I'll just I'll just say that uh, I think S- Stanley brings an interesting perspective, um, and I think it, like a lot of uh, thinkers on on the right these days. He started out on the left and and came to it with different uh, ideas than those of us who came up as teenage libertarians. And I I think it's interesting and there's a lot more a lot a lot of thoughtfulness in this book. And I I think a real it's a it's a good look at tradition and the, and the, and there are some there are plenty of examples he goes through that we didn't have time to get into, but it's. It's a good read. Um, addressing an issue that we've addressed more than once on the show is just, you know, if if not liberalism, then what?
0: Mm-hmm. All right, good stuff. That's Stanley. Catch us next time.